Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and join me for this episode of Take Notes is Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. Let's talk about how he wrote, recorded, and produced the album When the Lights Go. Orlando Higginbottom, better known as Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs, or Teed for short, is a singer-songwriter, DJ, and producer from London. Growing up in a musical family, Orlando was classically trained from a young age, studying at the Junior Royal Academy of Music. Discovering electronic music as a teenager, after borrowing tapes from his siblings, he began to experiment with DJing and production, releasing music on MySpace under the name Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. Signing to record label Greco-Roman, Orlando released his debut EP, All In One, 60 Dance Halls. And it was with the release of the single Garden from his second EP that he began to draw attention within the electronic music scene. Three further EPs down the line, and having released official remixes for artists including Lady Gaga, Katy Perry and Disclosure, in 2012 he released his debut album, Trouble, on Polydor Records. Praised for its blend of complex beats along with his gentle vocal style, the album reached the number two spot in the UK dance charts and was listed among the top albums of the year by DJ Magazine and iTunes. Alongside his own work, Orlando has collaborated as a writer and producer behind the scenes for numerous other artists, including Mark Ronson, Elderbrook, Bonobo, with whom he was nominated for a Grammy, and, as mentioned in Tape Notes episode 109, S.G. Lewis. Teed's second full-length record, When the Lights Go, released in 2022 on his own label Nice Age, brings together a broader spectrum of emotions, moods and sounds. Today, I'm here at home in Morden, South London, and I'm joined by Orlando in LA. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is Blood in the Snow. How much longer? Before the dam begins to break Crashing in water It is Blood in the Snow by Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs from the album When the Lights Go. And I'm very pleased to say that I am connected to Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs, Teed, or Orlando Higginbottom. Uh, the man in question is connected to me online. Hello, Orlando. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So we're connected online because we're in different parts of the world. I'm in rainy South London. It's early evening here, and I think it's morning time, kind of 11 o'clock or, or something. Your time in Los Angeles, California? 10 a.m. in L.A., yes. I'm pretty sure the last time I saw you was in Tooting at a place called the Tooting Tram and Social, where I used to host a night called The Remedy, and totally enormous extinct dinosaurs were my headliners one month. 
I'm not quite sure of the year, but it could be 2011, 2013. I know it's around that time. And you were wearing your dinosaur costume in those days. So mm-hmm. it's great to see you again. But that's like a lifetime ago because now you live the other side of the world. Tooting is just ancient history to you. <laughs> And the UK is, maybe. I don't know. Certainly not ancient history, but it was a while ago that I think I feel like that must have been 2010 or 2011. Right. Yeah, Yeah, that would make sense. Mm. But how long ago did you move to LA? I moved out here eight years ago, I think 2014, 2015. I get confused. During the pandemic, I left for a while and was back in Europe, but I'm in the States again now and I think I'm moving around a bit more. I don't think I'm settling for the time being. The pandemic kind of gave me itchy feet and I I wanted to sort of see a bit more of the world. So I don't have a permanent place anywhere right now. I'm just sort of going where the studios are and where the work is and where the inspiration is. Very lucky. Yeah. And yet uh, looking into where you are now and the studio that you are there, I can see a a baby grand is that behind you and uh, some other keyboards and a bit of a drum kit there. Yeah. So is this your own setup or is this somebody else's? No, this is a studio belonging to my friend who's a producer, film composer, artist called Chris Tracy. He's away writing a film score and I am sort of subletting it from him, which is amazing because it's almost exactly, I mean, it's 10 times better than my studio that I made this album in, but it's the same type of gear and it's built around the same ideas. He plays the same instruments as me and has similar kind of technique to me. So it's a perfect studio. Yeah, how exciting. And I guess it's great to be able to speak to you in an appropriate place about this new album, When the Lights Go. We're going to talk about three different tracks. I think maybe we should get stuck into the music Mm -hmm. and we'll dig further into all that history that we have Um, But Crosswalk is the first song we're going to hear about. So I think you're going to play us a little bit of the mastered version and then we'll, we'll go back to how you created it. Crosswork there by Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. So, Orlando, where did it start for this? And and the kind of big question that I guess we need to address is the fact that Trouble, the debut album, came out in 2012. And now the second album, When the Lights Go, just came out in 2022. Yeah. Ten years gap. <laughs> and, I mean, you have been busy. There's been lots of remixes, lots of collaborations with people. But there's a lot of tracks on this new album, 17 in all. So is that a stockpile of 10 years? I mean, I made a lot more music than 17 tracks. But at the same time, I don't know. I I think everyone is prolific to different 
levels. So uh, it took me a long time, yes. And it took me a long time not because of making the music or sort of feeling inspired or anything like that. It was the more I look back on it now, the more I see that the big holdup for me was much more to do with my sense of self of operating in the music industry. So I was just so put off by the idea of releasing music and having a bad experience and generally just the whole thing that I'd been through before wasn't very fun and I couldn't see a way to do it this time around and make it fun and feel healthy and safe for me to put out my work. So there were years where I didn't play anybody anything and I didn't even consider releasing anything because I just couldn't see a way to do it. I couldn't see a safe way to do it um, in a way that made sense to me. That means that there was a lot of music that I was making and finishing that never came out and will probably never come out, which is fine. I mean, I feel a bit sad about that sometimes when I think about it because I think I, w I see it as like wasted time, honestly. But apparently it was something I needed to figure out. So yeah, what we ended up with what I ended up with was a lot of music and I wasn't sure how to divide it up. And then I figured out a few ways to kind of like separate the material into different piles. And this album was based around one of those piles of material. And to be more specific about that, I guess, because otherwise it just sounds incredibly abstract. I split a big pile of music into three categories, sort of emotional categories, one being sad and one being hopeful and one being kind of like feverish a sort of action state and what i then see is that that's kind of like fight or flight or freeze is what those three things are right freeze is sad and this album is the sad pile and it's the frozen pile and it's the pile of songs that are about being stuck and depressed and not having much hope. So that probably doesn't sound very fun to any listeners. Um, but <laughs> but uh, if you hear the music, you know, that's a different case though, isn't it? But that, that was the process. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, Blood in the Snow, which was uh, a little intro track, I mean, that, you know, that's one side of the album in terms of the pace of it and everything. You know, mm -hmm. And that wouldn't necessarily immediately be boxed into the idea of frozen or, or sad I think necessarily. I mean, in terms of the music, right? Not necessarily the lyrics, you know, but the lyrics often reveal where the mind of the artist is mm -hmm. as much as the music. Uh, but Crosswalk, which we're going to talk about now, and it opens the album. How does this fit in to um, the evolution of the record and and your interpretation of this album being a bunch of frozen songs or mm -hmm. sad songs? Well, this is definitely an important song. When this took shape. It was the first day in the studio where I was like, I know what the album is now. And it was because this song happened. And I think because this song to me is muscular, it has like weight to it. It's quite chunky. And then lyrically, it was very down the line, very straightforward, what's going on here. Like there's a directness to it. And in that sense, because it's simple, it felt like it could be a cornerstone of the project. I mean, we'll get to how I got to the lyrics, but when it was lyric time, in fact, the whole song was about like taking the obvious route in terms of the production and in terms of the lyrics. And the lyrics, once I figured out what the metaphor was that I was going for, I just stuck with it. And that's 
basically a night out in Vegas being the equivalent for sort of like gambling on on love and how horribly that can go wrong or right. And similarly, with the instrumental, which is where it started, my feeling was like, and I remember the day that I started the beat, I was like, I want to do the simplest bass line I can think of. I want to do a bass line that I would have written at the piano when I was six years old, and I was trying to like copy pop music on the radio, like a one finger bass line. And that's where it started, and that's where it kind of finished as well. It was always like, let's take the middle road here and not try and overcomplicate this. Yeah. Do you have that bass line? Do you have any of the yeah. demos or the experiments that finished or led to the song? This track is very much built on the demo, and a lot of the stuff here is first take, stayed in the, in the track. So here's the bass line, and this is it. This is what I recorded that day. So very simple, and that I think is the OB6 is what I played it on. Then I backed it up with the Tal Juno simulator uh, VST, you know, the sort of copy of a Juno, uh, which I use for the kind of sub and stuff. But actually this track, probably more than anything else on the album, has my Prophet 8 and my OB6 all over it. So yeah, uh, that's the baseline. Yeah. And so, I mean, it stayed that way, you know, so you, mm -hmm. that initial inspiration ran through the whole creation. Yep. And it doesn't change. I mean, there's a tiny yeah. pre-chorus moment, which is also fun, actually. I'm just going to play it quick. This is a bar leading into the pre-chorus, which is just a three bar moment. Kept on So those two big crashes are like layered. I had a CP80 in the, in the studio, the Yamaha electric piano with the pickups. And that's all like layered and then crushed on top of itself and crushed on top of itself and crushed on top of itself. And then I would just freeze and print, freeze and print, freeze and print. One of the things that helped me finish this album was getting into the idea of once the sound is sort of like 75% right, printing it and no longer having it as something that's editable other than just audio and not trying to get it to 100% at any point. And it really freed me up and, and makes things fun because there's still a lot of mistakes in there. So with that kind of thing, now when I look at it, there's just a couple of waveforms, stereo waveforms, but it probably was eight or nine channels smashed on top of each other. And then you get these fun sounds, which I really like. And that, so that's interesting. It's kind of forcing yourself to commit to something to allow you to move on and move forward with it. Absolutely. So, I mean, with that baseline, did you move around with the rhythm? Did that change or did that stay the same? No, that stayed exactly the same. And I, it was that idea of doing the kind of simplest thing and then building on top of that, having the foundation be very, very simple. So there's lots and lots of other keys and synths and tiny edits that intertwine with it and sort of fall over it. Um, 
lots of things that only happen once and to keep it interesting. But the actual bass line and drum beat basically stay the same for the whole track. In fact, I'm pretty sure that the you know, apart from a few sort of skippy kick drum moments, there is no change in the drums apart from, um, yeah, a tambourine comes in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, maybe you could take us through those other additions then, you know, on top of your your bass core, <laughs> as it yeah. were, um, your foundation of the track then. But to keep it interesting, you decided to have all these other elements come in and, and disappear. Yeah. Maybe you could walk us through that. Yes. So the way that I would do that often would be just to run the track and then jam on a particular synth and a particular sound and then go through and just keep the odd moments that sound really interesting to me and then just delete the rest. So, for example, I think that this kind of stuff here, that probably would have been three or four like longer takes that, you know, had whole like melodic ideas in them, whatever. And they're completely unnecessary, but just in that little moment, they become something kind of useful. Not a particularly interesting example. I'll give you that. Let's find something more interesting for you. If I mute my drums and bass and you can hear the other stuff that's going on. Life is a forfeit. Make a confession under your lies. Play it unfolded. There's no way to win if you don't roll the dice You walk in the wrong Take your time Practice patience And to these eyes of mine So that is everything else that's happening other than the simple bass and drum. And that keeps it interesting enough for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, m maybe you could talk us through each thing that comes in or each sound. Because there are some other things, aren't there? Because there's, I mean, I'm not sure entirely how to describe them, but they sound like it could be a little drum break. It's almost reminiscent of Art of Noise or, or something like that. It has a kind of 80s flourish to it. Oh, I know what you're talking about. So at the beginning of the track, we have the big orchestral hits, that stuff. Yes, and then and at that the returns. end, yeah, and then the outro, they return. Yeah. Yeah. So they are orchestral. I mean, that's what I was thinking. Well, that stuff's fun. So um, I, I was thinking about... Um, <laughs> I don't knowingly know any U2 records, but I was thinking, I was wondering about what I thought really good U2 records might sound like, because everyone says that there's a great album called Joshua Tree, right? And I've never listened to it. Right. But I like imagining what good music is and then trying to make it. Um, <laughs> right. And once I started getting into the outro of this track, I was thinking about like a good U2 record. And I had these, this was the OB6 as well. That's three of the OB6 on top of each other. And then this big piano line, which was my CP80 layered with then a MIDI piano and then like another piano and then printed and squashed together.
And you can hear there's some like tapey delay stuff on there. And then the orchestra, which comes in, was again an OB6 synth sound that you can hear. I think this is it. There you go. Yeah. I love that. And then a lot of layers of sort of like cheap marimba sounds and glockenspiel sounds and like orchestral percussion. And then those old like 80s orchestra hits. And then just squishing that down into like a kind of 8-bit whatever and layering it with that synth sound. And also making sure that things aren't quantized too hard so there's a bit of kind of flam to those notes. And I think what it ends up sounding like is like a normal kind of 80s orchestra hit, right? But it's my own version of it. Yeah. So those three elements together, the the wide synth, the piano, and the orchestra hit, sounds like this. And there's some more synths. They're just kind of rising sounds. And you can feel that it it needs the bass line to root it. Now it's emotional. And the last thing that's on that is I took the chorus vocal and put it into like a granulator sampler thing and like kind of chopped my own vocal up a bit. So there was a kind of ghost of the chorus because I didn't want to return to the chorus itself. The outro of this track is one of my favorite things on the album, I think. And the original demo, I think it looped for like four minutes, you know, and then (laughs) I was like, okay, no one needs to hear that. (laughs) Yep. And you were talking earlier about how the lyric came after the music and the relation of the lyric to the music. So when you had this idea about the trip to Las Vegas and, uh, you know, can you explain how that developed and and how the music led to that? Yeah, I I think that, what I found in the bass line and that it was the synth from the chorus, this is what came before any of the the vocals. I had this. And something about that has the tempo and the kind of feeling of like walking, like a bit of a kind of swaggery, walk but it also makes me feel kind of that there's a tragedy to it for whatever reason I don't know yeah (laughs) mustn't question these things and I think that I'd recently had a weekend in Vegas enough recently in memory to want to sort of like pillage from it so yeah I had the I've never been hurt the way you hurt me line I've never been loved the way you love me line for the hook. I just, that just happened sort of without thinking about it. And then once love is a danger, the first line of the verse happened, it was just sort of like, okay, this is going to be about playing blackjack, but it's love. And it's going to be about like hotel rooms and like, yeah, sex. And I'm going to frame it in my mind, whether anyone else hears it or not. 
in Vegas. And and that just enables me to make the track. It, it doesn't matter to me really or to the art if people know that it's, you know, got this Vegas gambling thing going on. Yeah. It matters to me that I get the song kind of done and the song has um, momentum to its purpose. And that helps to have like yeah. an image in my mind. Yeah, it's almost like that. That is for you to get in the zone yeah. and the feeling of this particular track and how that works for you and to find those emotions in the music and in the, the right words to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I love all those different sounds. And I mean, is there a lot of processing that is going on? And, and with each of your vocal tracks, there's a, you know, often a different way of the way that you, you've processed the vocals or, or sung the vocals to match what you're trying to do with each track. Um, I mean, it is, because say like we're going to talk about Thugs later mm -hmm. on, and that's quite different to some of the other songs on, mm -hmm. on the album. So I was wondering whether each song requires a different treatment. It requires me to feel okay about the vocal that I'm sharing with the world. I definitely struggle with considering myself a singer. Um, perhaps some of you agree. So I have to sort of have it in a place where I feel that it's good enough. And so I might have the whole song vocal to finish and then re-record it and then re-record it a few times until, you know, it, maybe six months apart until I'm like, okay, I'm comfortable with that. This one, I remember, was the first time that I used um, that warm audio. I can't remember what mic it is, but I just got the warm audio remake of that fucking microphone. And yeah. this was the first session I used it on. So... I'll play you the vocal and the verse, and I'll talk a little bit about if there is any processing on it. Love is a danger. Yeah, there's loads of processing on it. <laughs> Nothing more dangerous than playing the part. Okay, so there's a bunch of short delays. This is on the group. And then I use this real bus tape emulator a lot, uh, which is like a saturator. It's got a bunch of stuff in it, but I don't know. I enjoy it. I use the OTT on vocals a lot. I think that like a touch of that is great just to excite the the highs because my voice, if it just if you just go straight in with my voice, it's very muddy. I have to scoop out almost all the the low heads for it to not feel like a dirge. Interesting play in the part ever wager. I think what I'm trying to do is make it feel more interesting than it really is. So I'm trying to add kind of like vibration into it. I'm trying to make it like quiver in the air a bit and feel like it has a kinetic energy. So that often comes through like doubling or chorusing or very short delay and then squishing it a bit. So there's almost like a fake vibrato. There's like a forced vibrato to the sound or something that is the equivalent of vibrato. So it just has that kind of like pulsing. Yeah, very interesting. Um, maybe we should hear a bit more of Crosswalk to round things off, another blast of the master, another section that we haven't heard maybe yet. And we'll move on to another song from mm -hmm. When the Lights Go. Here's the second chorus. Never been hurt. 
That is Crosswalk by Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. And we're going to look at another one of the songs from When the Lights Go just after this quick break. The next song we're going to look at from When the Lights Go by Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs is The Sleeper. And Orlando's going to play us the master now. Sleeper by Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. And Orlando, you were talking about this being the sad selection that you'd put into a pile, the frozen selection. And in a way, the Sleeper seems to epitomize that um, mm. when you listen to the album as a whole. This seems to be one of the, the sadder moments. Definitely. This is a very sad song. It took me a long time to make. And there were various moments where I didn't touch it for a few months and then came back to it. And each time I came back to it, I'd be like, shit, this is a sad song. (laughs) (laughs) And I often tried to find a way to make it less sad, to be honest with you. I thought maybe there could be some kind of like sort of happy conclusion to it or something. And then I, you know, just let it be. But yeah, this is pretty miserable. Yeah, but maybe it's important to to go that extreme you know to be if you're going to do sad do it really sad if you're going to go crazy go really crazy if you're going to be super happy go super happy i mean i i think so i don't have a a problem with it you know as in terms of making art that's very sad i think maybe just personally for me you know i have the feeling oh i don't want to represent sadness publicly or something like that so you feel a bit weird about it like that but you know objectively I'm very happy with it being miserable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great description. So where did this start? I presume it started from that mood, from from feeling down. Yeah, I remember I heard a, I'm not going to name it, but I heard a famous sort of, in America, um, adult contemporary country adjacent song on the radio. And I hadn't heard it before and it blew my mind. And I I went home and I sort of, again, this was a thing where I was sort of, from my memory of it, tried to figure it out on the piano and didn't. But in the process of trying to capture a certain mood that I heard, came up with the chord progression that's in this song. And uh, it went very quickly from having that chord progression, which I loved, to adding 
the very distorted kind of descant line that comes in at the end. It almost sounds like a guitar solo. So I'll play you the piano and then I'll play you that sound. So this piano, the main piano on the track is again my Yamaha CP80, which trivia used to belong to Dave Stewart. So that's trivia wow. for you. The Dave Stewart. Producer Dave Stewart. It's a great instrument to me. It immediately has, it just makes me want to write pop. And then straight away, I added a version of this line over the top of it. And then I think I sat on those two sounds for months and I would come back and add some drums or try adding some parts, but never really went past those two being the sounds. And what is that second sound, the one that does sound like a guitar solo? Because it really sounds as if you're really shredding there Mm. when it comes in at the end of the song. That was, again, my thing of like layering and layering and layering and layering and It was originally played on like a square wave on the Korg Minilog. And uh, I think the pitch bending on it is particular to that synth. That synth has a funny pitch bend knob. It's kind of like a joystick with a bit of a spring in it. And I think that's why the, the riff is kind of built around a pitch bend idea. And then putting that through guitar pedals, and then also I played it on the recent mini remake of the DX7. There's also some kind of FM sounds in there. Squash, 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 squash. Find out which one I want to be the kind of prominent of maybe the five sounds and then have that one like 10% louder than the rest, but the rest are just in there and there's delays on them and stuff. And I want it to sound like it's one sound, but I also that you're not sure where it starts and where it stops. And that that's kind of the sweet spot for me. I definitely went back and forth on it a lot to the point where I was like, okay, I need to do the like 75% good freeze and print thing here and just like print it and forget about it. Like someone else could do this better, sure, but it's not me. So we're going to leave it right here. Yeah. I mean, I love it. If there were a, a video, I mean, maybe there is a video of this song. This is the moment where I see you jumping in out of nowhere <laughs> in spandex, maybe with a hair metal wig on and and playing a guitar or, or something and kind of going absolutely crazy in the video, you know, and then, and then disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was, you know, what I loved about it was how flamboyant it was. And it felt definitely, obviously, feels princey and... Um, kind of glittery i love you know fm glittery bell sounds and there's a lot of them on this track actually fun wavetable and fm like kind of sparkles are you able to isolate those can you play us yeah. a few of those yeah so this is one particular that i think is nice and this is chopped up so that it w- makes space but this is it on its own
you can hear how many like overtones and undertones are in there. Like there's a lot of wrong notes that make it interesting. And then there's that kind of incredibly bright top end. And in context, I'll take out the distorted lead, but in context. And then with the distorted lead. It works, you know, on its own, it's dry and kind of awkward. And then in there, it becomes like, it feels like it's sharp. Yeah. 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 And it helps contrast everything, you know, so Mm -hmm. it accentuates all those different elements that you've got in there, which, you know, clearly makes them all stronger and makes them all stand out in in such a great way, which is really exciting. So um, what happened next then? So there are a few people I worked on this with. Um, the first big step I took with it was with Patrick Wimberley, great producer in New York. And uh, he heard these that idea of the chords and the, the top synth, and he was like, these chords are great. And he, I'd, I'd invited him to LA to help me make music. I was like, I'm struggling. Can you come and give me a kick along the road? And he was like, let's work on this. Go and write the verses, you idiot. So (laughs) I went to, I had a studio in my house and then upstairs in the living room kitchen area, I had an upright piano, a piano that I rented that was just for playing. I didn't record on it ever. Um, And I went upstairs and he was mucking around with the instrumental and I worked on the verse and the lyrics. And that sort of moved things along. And often that's the way for me, even if whether there's someone there or not there, it's that moment of like, okay, just do the thing you really don't want to do. And the thing that I often don't really want to do is write the lyrics because that's definitely a committing, you're committing to the song at that point. You're committing to what it's going to be about. And even if you change your mind, it's very hard to let go of those initial thoughts. And it was a confusing time in my life emotionally. I I really thought that I was writing a love song. Like I really thought that the lyrics were like a positive reflection of my relationship. When, you know, once I had any distance from that moment, I saw that they were not at all that, um, which showed me how confused I was in that time. And so I thought I was writing this song about kind of being grateful for somebody giving me a chance but actually it's a song about feeling unworthy of love which spoiler nobody is unworthy of love so you know yeah (laughs) it was a, a disastrous time but once I had that I'm not sleeping line and it started to come together and Patrick was adding these kind of like strange distorted fireworks sounds and stuff some of which exist a lot of which don't exist anymore, but that kind of like started to move things along. And then I took the track and worked on it with Julian Bonetta, who's another great producer. And he he threw the bass line over the verses and like made the kind of like, he was like, let's make it sexy, which I hadn't really thought of doing yet. So I'll play the, what, you know, this isn't what all he did, but this was like, part of what ended up happening was this groove in the verses. So that's him playing bass.
And again, that just like kicked it down the road a bit for me. And all these things are sort of, and I think it's what I do when I produce for other people. It's like, so often, have you tried this? Here, let me give you the first step down this path. And then the artist or me in this case goes, oh yeah, great. That's exactly what I needed. Thank you. I'm going to chase this for a while. I'll get back to you. So yeah, that's how, kind of how it started building. And there have been lots of versions of it, lots of arrangements, times where it hit that peak and then fell back down again, times where I revealed later ideas earlier. And as it is, it has a structure where it's like verse, verse, chorus, outro, and that's the song. And to me, that feels kind of contemporary. That feels kind of like where we're at with a lot of pop ideas. It's like we can press the repeat button now. We can listen to a song again. So we don't need to hear the ideas over and over within the piece of music. We can just state something once or twice or just once, and that's enough because people can listen to it again. And we're in this much more immediate cycle of consuming stuff. So I, I think it makes sense to have something that's just like A, A, B, C, done. Yeah. And I can see myself doing that more. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. You mentioned that you were renting this upright piano in your living room just for playing. Um, your background is in classical music. Was it the piano that you studied when you were a child? Because you took it to quite a high level, didn't you? Well, when you grow up playing classical music, the problem is that your standards just get completely fucked. And high level is so unobtainably high and then everything else is nothing. So I think that I sort of failed at all my instruments. But yeah, I, I grew up in a household where there were three pianos. My dad was a professor of music and was a conductor. He's retired. He's still around, but he's retired. So there just was a lot of music in the house. And I was really into it as a kid, like four or five years old, figuring out how to play vinyl and CDs and finding Mozart and Rossini and being like, yeah, this is what I'm into. Thank you very much. Leave me alone. So I studied the piano from seven and singing. I was a choir boy from eight. So I, I would say that as a child, my first instrument was really my voice and then the piano, and then I also learned the flute, but I try and forget about the flute because that really was a waste <laughs> of hours and my parents' money. And the piano and the voice, I both had then very different relationships with them. As a teenager, I wanted to kind of distance myself from all of that, and I was discovering electronic music and DJing and all those things. So I was, I definitely didn't want to be a choir boy. And, you know, I, I was arguing with my piano teachers and stuff. So I really discovered the piano again, probably when I was like 18, when I realized I could play for pleasure. And then my voice, I'm still on that journey. I still, as I said earlier, find it hard to consider myself a singer. And, you know, considering people like, you know, invite me to be a featured vocalist on their song, I certainly, you know, I don't warm up, I don't do any exercises. And that's not because I don't think I should. It's because I feel really, really awkward about using my voice. Like it's something that I feel very safe doing in the studio on my own. And then when it comes to sort of doing it publicly, I'm a bit embarrassed about it. Which is interesting uh, considering that, you know, you were part of a, a choir and that you were used to singing with other people and in front of other people. But I also think it's interesting that, well, one that you say, you know, you think you failed at those things because the, the standard in that world is so high. 
but the world that you now occupy, for many people, they end up working in electronic music, becoming a DJ, because they don't have that experience of the training that you might have had. And this is a, a way in thinking that, oh, I can get into DJing, I can get into making music, I don't need to spend 10 years studying an instrument, I can mm. kind of start doing this immediately. And that's always part of the appeal, I think, of a particularly electronic music that you can kind of create these sounds and these yeah. worlds almost immediately. But then I think all of these people who become regular practitioners of it, they end up then putting in the hours to become the experts and the creators that they are on their chosen yeah. instrument, you know, the computer yeah. or the, the synthesizer, you know, that then suddenly it overtakes them and they end up probably taking or devoting that amount of time that the classically trained person mm -hmm. might have done at one point at a slightly younger age, you know, because inevitably you get consumed in this world and you feel you have to put in those hours. My version of that is that when I was a kid, I wanted to be a composer and I, you know, I, I had manuscript paper and I would try and write string quartets and stuff. And, you know, when I was really young and obviously I never got past the second bar or whatever, but I loved the idea of it. And at the same time, I knew that even if I did write a string quartet, I would never hear it or certainly it would take me, you know, until I was sort of in my 20s before I was good enough or established enough to ever get four players together to play my music. And then when I saw that you could make music on a computer and hear stuff straight away and skip out that whole institutional budget players whole thing, that's when I was like, okay, electronic music, let's go. Because I can be in my imagination and I can get, get results straight away. So I really experienced a version of that firsthand. And I think that the, the other thing to say about that is that my classical mind and training and my love of popular music and popular culture, there isn't a divide between them. It's the same thing. Like, I'm lucky like that. I don't, I really don't feel like I have a snobby brain. I love it all and I see value in it all. I'm definitely going to say, like, Bach is the best musician that ever existed. Yeah, sure, fight me. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that everyone else isn't fucking amazing too. Yeah. It's all wonderful. I love swimming around in it. Yeah, and, and I love the fact that you, you rent a piano just for pleasure because you enjoy playing mm. the piano. <laughs> and it isn't in your studio. It's just there to have some fun on. But also it can be useful. It can be useful to free yourself in some way for the creativity that you're going to Yeah, so do. it's the it's the instrument outside of the workshop. So I can work things out there, but it's not there isn't the pressure of the record button and there isn't the pressure of like I'm at work right now. It's just like a play space. And since I did that, I've always imagined dream houses would have keyboard instruments in rooms that wouldn't be plugged in. And you can just go and play, you know, like a child plays and not like a professional musician plays. Yeah, really live the word play in the right way. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So, I mean, in terms of the sleeper now, what more should we explore within it? Well, I think that the other thing to look at here is just part of my process and the way that and I've sort of alluded to this already is there is a lot of sort of subtle layering. So in the beginning of the song, if I take out the the lead vocal and I take out 
the lead piano, which is kind of all that you can hear when you listen to the the final version. I'll play you the other stuff that's there really quickly, and you can hear that there's kind of like murmurs and bits of Rhodes and MS-20, Prophet, organ, Fairlight, VST. Yeah, all kind of like squished in there. That's a coyote screaming in the valley behind my house. A real coyote. Yeah, on my, on my iPhone. Turn this up a bit. Terrible bass played on a guitar and then pitched down. That's me. And then for context, here's how loud the piano is when it's actually in there. And I had a kind of like profit stuff. I had a kind of go-to kind of keys sound that's on a lot of the tracks, which is my CP80 and a Rhodes and then an organ, which is obviously very classic. It's very like classic soul, gospel texture. But just like putting those three together just immediately, I mean, it's almost too easy. It just sounds so bloody nice. And you're just playing with the balance between them. You don't need to do anything with them. But that's on so many of the tracks of the album are those three instruments layered with one as the prominent the lead yeah and in terms of getting that adjustment right is it the song that's speaking to you what the song requires um that determines that yeah i think probably avoiding muddiness and then yeah trying to just look for the right color yeah yeah it is really interesting um, i also think it's interesting you know that combination of music that you're creating with your voice helps give that music a new angle, a new fresh twist on it. So if it were one of these gospel singers that you're talking about singing on top of this, it would be a very different sound Mm -hmm. because we get used to those tropes, you know, and and a lot of the sounds that you're employing within The Sleeper and across the album, you know, have certain references to some of the things that you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're used to hearing those combine in a certain way that then does a certain thing. But then when you sing on it, it, is given a fresh perspective, a fresh sound, and it's renewed and becomes meaningful again because these are really powerful tools at your fingertips here that you're using. You know, you, and you realize that power because that's why you're using them. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, this does make me think about, and a good example of this for me is like Style Council's version of this, which was like white boy soul stuff or just soul music, but then... It's his vocal and his vocal, I think a lot of people find that really awkward, that music. It's really good music, but I think people find his vocal out of place and a bit awkward, and that's what makes it very special. And I've been listening to their stuff recently and thinking, feeling like a kind of kindred spirit there of like being in love with 
genres. And instead of like copying it, you do your own version of it and allowing that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And the sincerity and the honesty of expression gives it its power again and makes it hit people, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, as Paul Weller did with the Style Council, you know, having been more of a a rock or punk musician, you know, Mm -hmm. that this kind of brought his love of that, but made it accessible to people because they liked his voice from exactly. the previous music that he he had made. Um, right, so maybe we should round up The Sleeper because we've got another song we're going to mm-hmm. look at. There's there a section of The Sleeper we haven't heard or a, a side of it that yeah. we haven't explored. We haven't played the... So the middle breakdown, which is where I put what ended up, I kind of think of as the chorus. Is that Julian there playing that bass there? Playing that bass, yeah. And then Chris, whose studio I'm in right now, he also helped with production on this one. There's tiny bits of his guitar in here. Um, There's also like a big 808 sub that hits every two bars, just very, very low. And there were kind of other counter melodies and things and other parts for this. There was different choruses. I mean, honestly, this idea took me five years from the start so that's not a good thing but it just means that there were a lot of versions and a lot of you know different melodies at different times that were the main melody and then just completely got discarded yeah and and you're not working on that one song for five years non-stop absolutely not other stuff going on so Mm -hmm. um you know you're putting it to one side for a while Mm -hmm. revisiting it a few months later and exploring ideas but the final thing works really well and and you got there in the end so it's (laughs) clearly worth having that patience um we're going to move on we're going to take a quick break so from the sleeper the next song we're going to look at is thugs next the next song we're going to look at from when the lights go is thugs and orlando you can do the honors and give us a blast of the master Thugs by Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs from When the Lights Go, 
the second album. And that's actually the closing song. And it's, it has a really dreamy quality to it, mainly brought by the voice, but also um, a lot of those different noises and sounds you've got going on in there. What, what was your intention with this song? Intention? Uh, damn, that is a very good question. I don't know. I know that what I ended up with was a song about being born into like a patriarchal world and not having any kind of choice about that, of what life you're born into and the system that you grow up in. And uh, very simply put in the first line of the song, fucked on arrival. And I'm pleased about that because I wanted to write a song about something like that. I wanted to be able to put into a song the emotion of kind of like, you know, I lived in America all through Trump's presidency and sort of dominant feeling I had during that time was like, shit, the bullies are winning. Like the characters that have always made my life hard are running shit right now and they're doing exactly the same stuff they did in the school playground. They're still just like, claiming innocence and lying and treating people horribly and being violent and being full of hate and lies and it's working. And for me, this is my song about it. So I guess that's the intention. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So those are the thugs of the title. Yeah. Right. So did the title come first or did you start writing these words and then think, yeah, they are thugs? Um, the piano came first and then I don't know when the, the title came. I know that the lyrics came in one go in one, like 20 minute, just like, here's the song. And then the production took a really long time. And there's some fun stuff in here, which I'm excited to, to show you, but the sort of songwriting here was easy bit and the kind of progression is. I think like A, A, B, A. And again, it's a, a structure with the, the vocal that's kind of like a verse that just kind of rises and that's it. Like there's no chorus, it doesn't return to anything. And again, that kind of makes sense to me in our current musical landscape. Yeah. So wh where should we start? I'll show you the piano that it started with. This is just the, again, the CP80, this time... There's a bit more processing on it, but just EQ stuff. It starts super, super... I'll take the filters off it so you can just hear actually what it is. Take the EQ off. Like, it's not a great recording, you know? It's not a great sound. I don't think any engineers are going to be like... Nice one, dude. <laughs> and how are you recording that? Are you running that straight into a desk or are you it's, miking that up? No, it's line out of the keyboard and, and then that's it. Mm. You can do a through send thing on this CPAT, but this was just uh, line out and super tinny and weird and strange EQ on it, strange frequency response on it. And then... The bass underneath it is a kind of wide sound on the Poly 6 plug-in. Before we get to the bass, should we hear how you then, you know, so you've, we've just heard the, the dry keyboard, but you applied filters and EQ to it. Should we hear that mm -hmm. first? So this is where it gets to, well, it starts around here. 
Because what happens with the, this piano is it, it gets very thick in a texture very easily. It can take over, it can dominate. There's something in it that would, I would find really hard to mix. And then it opens up here. And this was the first take I did. And like a year later, I then worked out what those notes are and backed that little arpeggio moment up on some um, other pianos. MIDI. Adding back in the original. I really like that. Mm. There's another piano in there. My dad's piano is in here as well. Just the chords. Two of them, two recordings. And so <laughs> I can see here on the tracks that I had to tune this because my dad is a classical musician and, a, and interested in classical music and Baroque music. So classical being like Mozart, Beethoven and Baroque being Bach and Cooper and stuff. And he has two keyboard instruments in his study and one is a harpsichord and one is a piano and they're tuned at different pitches to whatever academic system he's rolling with. So it's not the same pitch as my CP80. So I then had to kind of shift them in a bit. So you have quite a few keyboard instruments kind of working together to kind of make this kind of like comp of those chords. So if I mute the drums and the vocals and the extra stuff, these are, these are the keyboard instruments. Which I really like. I think that's a great sound. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's interesting. I always find as a non-musician, I always find it amazing because musicians share all these different stepping stones along along the way. And so often I would be quite happy and content to say, right, I'm going to stay with that. That's all I'm going to do. I think that sounds right. great. And right. I'm going to listen to that for an hour. Um, right. Well, you might be right about that. <laughs> Julian Bonetto, who helped me with the last track we listened to he his dad was a record producer and his dad has a saying which is a very american frame, saying but it's don't drive past the money like if you feel that it's great it's great like stay there and i often go way 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 beyond that and come back around i think the process of this whole album was kind of that it was like overdoing i overcooked everything on this album by my own admittance and it's made me feel that the next thing i need to do has to be very light in contrast, but this is a good example of that. This song, like, there's a lot of layers in here, which I, yeah, I'd love to play you. Well, please play away. So, after you'd established all of that, what did you look at next? Uh, the drums, which <clears throat> there's a couple of interesting things in here. I was taking bits of the drums that I was making and processing the whole drum bus in a very extreme way with 
delays and distortions and kind of like reverse stuff and recording that fully wet and then layering that on top. And this would be the old version of the drums as an effect, this sort of thing. That was the drums. And then I'd kind of put that in with the actual drum track. It gives it an extra spatial dimension in a way. And there's something, there's like an organic part in there that's changing throughout the whole track. Well, there's a couple of them and they, they're never looping. And then, of course, there is a loop or with a few edits in there. And But there's a few parts that are just constantly moving and flowing. And, and I don't overthink the, I don't overthink it or I don't think about it at all. Is it, I don't know. But I don't think much about when those changes happen and I just chuck it in there and see how it plays off the rest of the music. And certainly at the end of the track, like I turn that kind of intense stuff up. Yeah. But the drums, yeah, it took me a long time to get right. And I, when I hear the track now, I still think that like the kick isn't, isn't right. And I wonder how somebody better than me would have done it. And then there's a lot of small synth parts in here. So just when the first vocal comes in, all this stuff. So there's the Buchla and the CS80 and the Farfisa and all these parts just kind of like being murky together. And often I would play one single line on each instrument as a counter melody and then just put them together. And I can understand this sounds a bit mucky and muddy, but what ends up happening is you, when it's in the context of the track, your ear picks out the counter melodies it wants to hear. And then the MS-20, I would often like take the MS-20 and put in a guitar pedal, a delay pedal, and then just play that on everything I was working on that day. And, you know, just do like an MS-20 session. So there's there's a lot of MS-20 and, and shitty old boss Delay pedal. Yeah, and these little ghosty things are what kind of keeps it from just being keys and vocal for me. And then strings and saxophone are the other two elements on this. I had a session musician friend of my younger brothers play a bunch of sax over it and then I chopped his bits up into, into just what ended up being two phrases near the end with kind of delays on them. It's such a nice sound. Mm, I wish I'd learned the clarinet or the saxophone instead of the flute. It's never too late. It feels like it's too late, mate. <laughs> um, and finally, strings from the Spitfire Labs collection thing. That This is very accessible and, and everybody uses it and it's a great sound. Uh, but here, 
they are on their own. And there's a few moments there where I chop and loop bits of the audio so it has a kind of pulse to it. Um, so without the drums and the vocal, the texture is, I love it. It's like this. And you're right, I probably should have left it like that. <laughs> um, and so the, and having evolved all those different sounds and created all those different textures and depths to go with the rest of the song, let's marry them all back up together. Well, it's a, I'll play it to you just at the, the sort of peak of the vocal bit. The thing I struggled here with was the mix, and that really was hard And because... Little adjustments made a very big difference to how I felt about the song and and what was coming through because there are so many lines in there, and again, like I, it's one of the ones where I, I would have loved to have heard someone else's mix of it, but this is where I ended up. In terms of the vocal, Orlando, for this, how did you record your vocal this time round? Because it, it does sound different to a lot of the other songs. Very, very quietly, which is often how I record vocal, but I have a feeling this was uh, SM7, it's the microphone, and then I can see here that there's three tracks to each part, three on the lead, and then two on each of the harmonies. And... I definitely would have kept in the original first sort of demo pass and then added a sort of better performance and layered that in. I remember melodining this one a lot and pulling notes into the right place a lot. In terms of processing, micro shift, kind of doubling, lots of EQ and doubling. Mm. Um, not even much in the way of any kind of space. There's a plate reverb on on the lead. Here's the a cappella at the beginning. On arrival. Bit of space. Touch for survival. I think what you get when you do the layering like this with my voice is almost like what feels like a very slow kind of flange sound <laughs> because 
yeah, there's just kind of natural doubling and phasing going on. And that works for me because that's more interesting than my voice on its own to my ears. Yeah, no, well, it, it sounds great. Um, before we let you go, um, we have a couple of questions that we always ask everybody who comes on mm -hmm. Take Notes. So we will get to those. But uh, let's hear the whole of all those ingredients that you've shown us now. It really is a beautiful track. That is Thugs, totally enormous extinct dinosaurs. And I'm intrigued by the lyric and the idea of the song and its response to the thugs and the beauty that you've created um, in contrast to the negativity that kind of partly inspires those words. Mm, yeah. It's a way of getting away from these people, possibly. Yeah, I think that the like act of making music for me and I don't think this is pretentious, but it may cross the pretension line. It is like an act of hope, I think, making music. I think that making art or being creative is a hopeful act. So even if the subject matter is depressing, I still think that you, by doing it, you're sort of showing, you're saying, yes, there's a future. So, yeah, yeah there's a balance. Definitely. As I mentioned, we always ask everybody a couple of questions um, when they come on tape notes. Uh, one is about tech or a piece of equipment or an instrument that either for this project or in general that you can't work without or that you would rescue if there was a studio mm -hmm. on fire or, or anything like that. I mean, you've talked quite a lot about the Yamaha CP80 that you got off Dave Stewart. Is that it or is there something else? Um, for this album... Yeah, it's probably that piano. For this record, I had a very light studio setup. I don't use any outboard processing beyond guitar pedals as effects. All the other kind of major processing is done in the box. And then the outboard stuff is all instruments. I think that's because of what I'm inclined to do technically. I'm not like particularly proficient with a you know, if somebody puts like a really lovely preamp in front of me, I feel like it's wasted on me. So I feel more comfortable doing that stuff when it's digital because it's not so precious. Yeah. But yeah, I'll go for the CP80 as my sort of like, that was the sort of most important instrument on this record. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of favorite plugins or you know, those things in the box that you're using, are they go-to elements that you, you love? Yeah, I think this um, Simon Bonobo showed me this plugin that I talked about. It's by TB. I don't know who TB are, but it's called Real Bus 4. And it's the sort of saturation thing that's around. And it has a sort of, you can kind of get like dropouts and decay and, and like it, it sort of ruins sounds. This is going to sound really annoying, but the further I go through my career and the more time I spend in the studio, the more I think it's basically about volume 
and what you want to do is play with volume and that obviously includes volumes of certain groups of frequencies so eqing but it's about levels so i use the utility situation the gain on in ableton a lot and i want to focus in more on that in my own work you know less polishing more just levels i'm less and less interested in being like a technically sort of exemplary, futuristic producer. I think growing up in the 90s and 2000s, that's what I thought a producer was. You know, it was all about the future. Now, I just, I want the musical idea to be front and foremost and the sort of like technique. I don't want anyone to notice the technique behind it. Yeah, very interesting. Um, The other question that we ask everybody is about advice and whether they've received any advice along the way or have learned through various lessons advice that they'd want to share with other people. I mean, this partly in a way links into what you were saying right at the beginning of our conversation about being unhappy and trying to find your place within the music industry and having negative experiences that were putting you off. I wondered how you came to the I'm hoping happy place that you're at now, you know, now that you, you got to the point where you're able to finish the album and get the album out there. W- what happened? Where, where did you find this equilibrium or balance? I think there's a really, really long answer to this. So I'll, I'll try and keep it short. I realized over time that I had to be not just the artist, but also my own manager and my own record label and my own A&R and my own legal representative, that even if there are people involved in my career who do those roles officially, I have to take care of all of them too. And I have to take them just as seriously as I take the music. And I wanted to do that. I just didn't know that I was kind of allowed to be that adult about it. I felt that my initial experiences of the music industry were very infantilizing, very disempowering, that I was just the artist and that, you know, I wouldn't understand how it works and da-da-da. And of course, I would understand how it works. It's just that if you see how it works, you see that you're being screwed. So no one wants you to see that. Once you notice that you're being screwed, which you are, then you have to choose to either take responsibility and find a path through that's more fair or not. And I don't think that people make it very far once they're aware of how toxic the music industry is if they don't do something about it. So doing something about it looks like fighting really hard over record deals, fighting really hard for good production deals when you're a producer, fighting really hard so that your management, your deal with your management is really fair for you and not for them. Like, fuck them. Fuck them. It's a deal for you first. And these things are hard to do. It's hard to get to that point. I'm still working on it. But the only musicians I know in the generation above me and the sort of like, you know, the people I looked up to who are still standing and still doing well do all of these things themselves. And they have their teams and they have people they work with, but they know exactly what's going on with all of the bits of the process, and they make all the decisions. So my advice is to get to that point as fast as you can. And that doesn't mean 
not working with people at all. It means working with people who can handle you being like that and want you to be like that. So, you know, work with people who want an artist that knows what they want and and so on and so forth. Okay, that's enough. I'm definitely bum- babbling on now, but um, it's no, something I feel very strongly about. You know, I've, I know so many musicians, so many of us having an incredibly hard time, despite what it looks like to everybody else. It's really unstable. It's not getting better. It's getting harder. And some of that is sort of force majeure shit we can't do anything about. And some of it is just the dumb contracts that we're signing. So it's on us as well. Yeah, I think that's really important and really powerful. Take responsibility Mm -hmm. for yourself. Yeah. In whatever way, you know, that you can. Because you are at the core of this. You are at the center of this. This is your work. So the more responsible you are about it in whatever way, you know, from, you know, the choice of chords or note combination to the choice of, of the people that you work with or the, the deals that you strike or how you share your music, etc. If you act and take some responsibility for yourself, then you'll, you'll see the benefits. That's what you're saying. Yeah. You can take that creativity and that care that you have of your music and you can apply it to business. Hmm. It's not that dissimilar. You can use the same heart and spine that you need to make good creative decisions in business decisions. Fascinating. That is powerful stuff, Orlando. That's a a great sentiment to end on. Um, Thank you so much for letting us in to your world. And it's so good that there is a second Teed album out there. Thanks. This is important stuff. And I'm hoping that, you know, having unleashed the frozen pile, that the hopeful pile might be next. Or, you know, hopefully there's going to be... Coming right up. You know, 2023 could see more releases. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Good news. And more performances? Uh, Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm busy. Great. Let's go. Fantastic. Um, Let's have an outro, another song from When the Lights Go that we haven't heard. Then that can see us out. Let's get the title track up. Brilliant. Thanks again, Orlando. And here is the title track, When the Lights Go, Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.